0: Hello, and welcome to H-Law's Legal History Podcast. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today we will be discussing Laws of Image, Privacy and Publicity in America by Samantha Barbas, Associate Professor at SUNY Buffalo Law School. Dr. Barbas, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me on the show.
0: Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself? your background, and how you became attracted to studying First Amendment law, American legal history, privacy law, and mass communications law?
1: Sure. Um, I guess my story kind of starts with my decision to go to history graduate school at UC Berkeley. And uh, since my childhood, I'd always been interested in history and culture and entertainment, uh, particularly the history of the film industry, since my dad had worked in the film industry in the 1950s and 60s. And when I was in Berkeley, um, down the street from where I was living, there was this great video rental store. This was in the era of VHS tapes. And this store was run by some real movie aficionados. And they had everything going back to the origins of movies in the early 20th century. So I I went to these films, and I watched them, and I became really interested in silent film and films of the so-called golden age of Hollywood in in the 1930s and 40s. So I became really interested in the relationship between films and their audiences, and this led me to a dissertation on the subject of movie fans between about 1910 and 1950, and that dissertation became a book called Movie Crazy. And that ultimately led into another book, which was a biography of a famous gossip columnist, uh, Luella Parsons, who really kind of invented the genre of a Hollywood gossip column back in the 1920s. And she wrote for the Hearst newspapers for about 40 years. And I think Luella Parsons was really responsible in some ways for the creation of celebrity culture in the U.S. Um. So I went to law school after graduate school and after a few years of teaching in the history department, and I was pretty well-versed in film and journalism history, of course. And so in law school, I gravitated towards legal history, and I became interested in media law and the history of media law. And as I did this, I began to see that there was a whole side of the history of American publishing that I hadn't covered as a film and journalism historian, that was the legal side, right? So the legal history of modern American publishing and communications, I found, is a, it's a really rich and an important story, and uh, it's one that hasn't been documented and one that I think needs to be told. So that, that's what I've tried to do in some of my work.
0: Would you tell us now how you came to write your current work, Laws of Image?
1: Sure. Um, So when I started doing the history of media law, I was surprised to find that very little had been written about the history of modern libel and privacy law, which have really played uh, such an important role in American politics and culture. And and just to clarify, when I talk about privacy law, I'm, I'm talking about the right to privacy that can be invoked against the media. So the right to sue the media when it publishes something that's private or invasive or or humiliating. I'm not talking about privacy in its other legal senses, like a right to make reproductive choices or a right to be free of state surveillance and so on. Um, So in general, I found that scholars who write about libel and privacy tend to focus on the present day, and they also tend to highlight the weakness of American libel and privacy laws compared to the laws that exist in other countries, uh, particularly in Europe. In the US, as I'll I'll be talking about later on, uh, the laws of privacy and libel have been substantially constrained by the First Amendment. And so this is really interesting to me. And certainly if you look at it from a comparative perspective, I think our laws of privacy and libel are fairly weak. At the same time, if you look at this from a historical perspective, um, this area of law is in some ways stronger and more expansive than it was a century ago. Uh, So that is to say there are far more cases. uh, The reach and scope of these laws has broadened. And today no one really questions the idea of legal recovery for injuries to a person's privacy and to one's feelings. Those were certainly not well accepted propositions a hundred years ago. So libel and privacy law have really flourished in the modern U.S. Uh, and I wondered as a historian how we could account for that. So I looked at this question um, from the perspective of a legal historian and also a cultural historian. I wondered, uh, might there be a correlation between the trajectory of these laws uh, in changing attitudes towards reputation and public image on the public and private self. So in the 20th century, we get the rise of celebrity, photography, and film, and the culture of fame. Um, and Americans become increasingly concerned with and invested in their public images. So I wondered, could there be any relationship between this image consciousness and the expansion of? libel and privacy law, which really are laws that protect your public image and your ability to control your public image. So as I researched, I began to see that we could, in fact, track the rise of the tort of invasion of privacy, uh, what I describe as a modern libel tort, and also the tort of intentional infliction of emotional distress against this growing significance of images images and public images in American culture. And that's what my book does. So my book tries to reconceptualize and reframe this area of law as laws of public image. Laws that protect a person's ability to defend, control, and to feel good about one public image and presentation itself. So there are a few key players in my story. Uh, one of the central players, is the law and its formal architects, particularly courts and legislatures. Uh, In my book I explain how the laws of image developed over the 20th century and how the scope of those laws expanded steadily to reach a range of harm to people's images. Um, The creators uh, and distributors of the mass media are another key player. Um, The media were the most common defendants in personal image lawsuits, uh, and in their own right, uh, were important in the making of modern image law. And the star of my story is really the ordinary American, the average person who's not a celebrity, who's not a famous person. And I see my book as a history of the average American and his struggle to preserve and protect his public image. What I'm trying to do in the book, I think, is to track a sense of popular consciousness, and I illustrate that in the 20th century, a broad range of Americans came to regard their public images not only as social phenomena, as things to be worked out in social interaction, but actually legal entities, so one's public image was something that could be maintained and managed through the use of law and legal institutions. And this legalization of personal image, I believe, marked an important development in the history of the law and also, I think, in the modern history of the South.
0: In what ways is the development of image law part of a broader saga about how Americans became fascinated with, perhaps even obsessed, with their personal image?
1: So I I think it's fair to say that the modern U.S. has been as Image-oriented society. And today, as we know, images surround us and besiege us. Images are everywhere: ads online, throughout the cultural landscape. Uh, we've become very attuned to our looks, impressions, uh, surface appearances. Uh, we're very seduced by images, particularly our particularly our own personal image. We invest billions of dollars and many hours in our images. Uh, and stories we tell about ourselves, our cultural myths, images are the key to prosperity, social acceptance, and and personal happiness and well-being. And so I argue that the the 20th century witnesses the rise of a cultural attitude in which the self is conceptualized in terms of images. Americans become aware of having public images and being images. They, they come to see their identity as embedded in the image or persona uh, that one strategically constructs and presents to others. Um, and my, my argument is that the law both responds to and contributes to this focus on images and the rise of the image concept itself. Uh, By the 1940s, if not earlier, there is a body of tort law, this image law I've been describing, um, that arises to protect a person's public image, his ability to control his image, and his feelings about his image. So tort law becomes kind of a a venue for or a participant in Americans' concerns with personal image. And I think that the models of, of personhood and identity that are embedded in these laws, uh, in turn, come to shape cultural understanding of itself.
0: What societal changes in the late 19th century led to a rise in surface image crafting? How did this impact the types of things people sued over?
1: Yeah, so my, my story starts in the late 19th century uh, with the, the beginnings of mass publishing in the United States. And um, urbanization in this time, and growing audience for the mass media, and advances in publishing technology lead to this proliferation of printed material. So in this time, paperbacks and other cheap books uh, begin to appear on the market. Popular magazines such as, as the Ladies Home Journal uh, reach a, a mass audience. Newspaper readership increases exponentially between 1870 and 1900. The number of newspapers doubled in this time. So there's this explosion of media, uh, and there's also a transformation in media content. So back in the early 1800s, the the typical subjects of newspaper coverage were public figures, uh, politicians, public officials, Captains of industry and and news stories tended to cover their official activities, their public deeds. Well, in the late 19th century, publishers began to realize that human interest stories are more attractive to audiences than dry dramas about the comings and goings of of public officials and statesmen. So this new media begins to focus on crimes, love affairs, divorces. people's social outings, like matters of ordinary life are splayed across the pages of the newspapers. Um, and in the 1890s, publishers took this to new heights with yellow journalism, right, right with uh, prominent illustrations and detailed coverage of uh, murders and, and sexual affairs. Um, so, what do you do when you're the subject of this media coverage? what do you do when you find your personal life uh, has been published in a magazine or a newspaper? News about your wedding or stories about a past crime you've been involved in, maybe a clandestine love affair. Well, you could bring a lawsuit, right? So that the victims of media gossip and sensationalism began to bring libel lawsuits. And libel, of course, was a very well-established area of Of the law, so in order to be actionable as a libel, a statement had to be both defamatory and false. So, a defamatory statement is one that lowers a person's reputation in the community. It exposed a person to hatred or contempt. It injured him in his profession or or trade, caused him to be shunned by others. So, the, the protected domain uh, of libel law is one's reputation, right? one's good name among one's peers. Um, so, libel law deals with false and defamatory material. What do you do when things that are published about you are embarrassing but true, or embarrassing to you but don't actually lower your reputation? In other words, don't injure what other people think of you. So, the deficiency of libel law, the inability of libel law to deal with true but embarrassing material or embarrassing but non defamatory material um, leads to the invention of the right to privacy.
0: In what ways was the right to privacy proposed in 1890? An expression of a nascent image conscious sensibility?
1: Yeah, so the right to privacy. I just said, it was a, it was a product of this defect in the for cord, but it was also a consequence of the rise of, of what I describe as the, the image conscious sensibility, um, which, I, which is kind of a, a modern sensibility. Um, in small towns and villages, I'd say early 19th century, a person's social identity was largely a product of of ongoing interactions with known and familiar community. A person's social identity or reputation was something that was accrued over time through ongoing contact. Urbanization comes to unsettle this way of creating a social self. So in the growing cities of the late 19th century, when a person is surrounded by strangers, his social identity becomes more a function of first impressions rather than ongoing contact. So what observers might infer about someone based on uh, chance encounters, uh, and glimpses on the street, uh, impressions made in theaters and stores, on railway cars, and other, other public venues. So surface appearances and first impressions become very important. And people began to turn increased attention to the presentation of self in public. And I suggest that in the cities there was this new image consciousness, this new preoccupation with mastering and perfecting one's social appearance. There was this idea more than ever that a person had to perform one's social identity, that one went out in public to see and be seen. And this image consciousness is heightened by new visual technology. Photography was becoming popular in the late 1800s. Visual advertisements encouraged people to scrutinize their appearances and to purchase products that would help them enhance their looks and images. People across the social spectrum uh, were being encouraged to cultivate An attitude towards their bodies and appearances that was strategic and instrumental. People were adopting an external perspective on themselves and seeing themselves as images in the eyes of others. One historian has written, uh, in the 19th century commercial metropolis, the immediate impressions people made on each other were coming to be seen as the very basis of social existence. So we have this rising image consciousness in this time. Uh, at the same time, privacy was also beginning to emerge as a major concern for the middle class. And privacy became a concern with the rise of an industrial urban society and the agents of authority and control that came with that, namely bureaucratic governments, mass media, corporations, police forces, Um, There was this feeling that the ability to define and own oneself was being impinged upon by these distant institutional forces over which uh, the ordinary person had no oversight or control. And so people began to worry about invasions of privacy and complain about a loss of privacy. Uh, And one of the most egregious invasions of privacy at the time was the journalistic invasion of one's personal affairs, one's home life. Among the late 19th century middle class, the home was seen as sacred. It was a private sanctuary, a protected space where one could express one's innermost thoughts and feelings apart from the demands of of the workplace. And the home was regarded as kind of a backstage to one's public performance. It was a place where people could drop their front and reveal their true selves. Uh, people were said to have distinct public and private selves, and part, an important part of privacy was the ability to maintain this divide. So, if you have a newspaper that's exposing domestic affairs in public view, well. It's a horrible thing because it brings your private self into public view, right? It's undermining and compromising your public persona. Um, So privacy then involves the right to self-chosen publicity, the right to choose and create one's public self distinct from one's private self. So as such, uh, one's privacy could be evaded not only when one's domestic activities were exposed, but when any material about a person was made publicly visible in a way that clashed with their desired public image. So people of the time described being victims of invasions of privacy when they were publicized in, press, in the press in a manner that was embarrassing or uncomfortable to them, even though what was disclosed technically wasn't secret and didn't happen behind closed doors. Uh, people would say it was an invasion of privacy when the details of a person's wedding ceremony were published without consent, even though the event occurred in public. Somebody's walking down the street, uh, a newspaper cameraman takes a photograph of it and publishes it, right? The act of walking down the street is indisputably public, but the taking of the photograph and publishing it in the, publishing it in the newspaper was often described as an invasion of privacy. So the term invasion of privacy is used to describe any kind of unwanted, upsetting, or unauthorized depiction of one's person or one's personal affairs to a public audience, even if materials disclosed are not literally private. So the legal status of these so-called invasions of privacy uh, is problematic. At the time, there was no legal remedy for being publicized against one's will unless the publication was false and defamatory, libelous. So the need for a legal remedy for these media invasions of privacy uh, inspired what has been called the most famous law review article of all time, and that was the 1890 Harvard Law Review article called The Right to Privacy by Samuel Warren and Lewis Brandeis. Uh, This very famous article was an attack on new media. It required gossip columns and information about personal affairs that were spread in the newspapers. Warren and Brandeis wrote the press, overstepping obvious bounds of propriety and decency. And these authors proposed a common law cause of action that would allow the victims of media invasions of privacy to sue the press and recover damages. So unlike libel, their proposed tort did not protect a person's reputation in the eyes of others so much as one's ability to define his own public image. The right to privacy, as they defined it, was the right to keep one's personal affairs out of the public eye and more broadly, uh, to determine one's own image without interference from the media. Uh, So under their proposed privacy tort, damages could be recovered for injury to one's feelings. And this was quite a novel development. Uh, The common law had traditionally prohibited recovery for injuries to the emotions in the absence of a, a tangible harm, such as injury to uh, one's property or one's body, uh, and the Warren and Brandeis proposal was actually asking for something very forward-looking recovery for emotional or intangible harm. Uh, Warren and Brandeis described privacy's domain as the realm of the soul and the spirit. In my book, in chapter two, I claimed that the right to privacy also had a more earthly and instrumental aspect. In this image-oriented culture of the late 19th century, unwarranted and embarrassing depictions in the press were seen as highly damaging and that they undermined a person's ability to cultivate his public image and to maximize his fortunes and social potential. So the right to privacy, I argue, is rooted in practical and material concerns with public image in American social life.
0: Okay. um, I think you briefly alluded to this in your last answer, but could you go into more detail about Victorian-era identity theft?
1: Yeah. uh, So that is a term that I made up, uh, and I write about this in Chapter 3, when I describe the early career of the right to privacy around the turn of the 20th century. And so the right to privacy was initially invented as a remedy for the victims of sensationalistic journalism, but it was actually rarely used in that context, at least in its early years. Um, The right to privacy takes off in American law in a different setting. Uh, The right to privacy was mobilized in cases where people were upset about having their photographs presented to the public in an embarrassing manner. So in particular, individuals whose photographs had been used in advertisements without consent brought suits for invasion of privacy. Uh, and in what was a very common phenomenon at the time, ordinary people would find their pictures randomly in ads for a variety of consumer products. You could wake up one morning and look in a newspaper and find your face in an ad for beauty products or patent medicine or food uh, items. And the reason for this was that photographs were actually very hard to come by. Uh, photography was still a relatively new technology, and advertisers wanted to use photographs of people in their ads, but they couldn't get the photograph as quickly and as cheaply as they wanted, so they would actually steal photographs. Uh, from portrait photographers, it was kind of a black market in photographs at the time, and they would run them in ads without the consent of the subject. And this was highly offensive. Uh, advertising for consumer products was regarded as disreputable and even immoral. So these acts of image appropriation were seen as highly upsetting. Uh, and so it was in this context, suing over these unauthorized advertising images that their rights privacy began to be recognized in American law. Um, And these claimants in these cases are not suing because they want money. They don't want to be paid for the commercial value of their images. What they're seeking to recover is uh, damages for the emotional harm, the trauma that occurs from being commodified in this way. Um, the idea that you could make money by selling the picture, right? the idea of your face as a form of property was kind of repugnant to the Victorian sensibility. So the right to privacy at that time was envisioned as a means to prevent the commercial exploitation of the persona, to kind of preserve a self that was beyond the non-market beyond forces. Um, Of course, this would change dramatically in the 20th century. By the 1950s, the right to privacy is extended to include a right to profit from the commercial exploitation of your image. So the right to privacy comes actually to protect the right to sell your image as property. It's sometimes referred to as a right of publicity. And the reason for that change, I argue, is that by the 1950s, it's no longer considered shameful, but rather prestigious and a sign of status to have your image in an advertisement. Movie stars began to advertise products. Modeling becomes a prestigious profession. So commercializing one's persona, which used to be viewed as so disreputable that it was unworthy of legal protection, um, by the 50s, this has no stigma whatsoever. So courts begin to conclude that everybody has a right to control their images. That includes a right to extract commercial value from them.
0: Okay. Um, I think you again alluded to the answer to this question a little bit earlier, but maybe you can go into more detail. How did the culture of the 1920s heighten the emphasis on public images and the act of image making?
1: So, as I explained in, in chapter five of the book, there was this very intense kind of image consciousness that took root in the 1920s. Um, in this time when the strict Victorian moralism was fading away, uh, when consumer culture and mass entertainment was becoming prominent, uh, when advertising and fashion and celebrity and the media become uh, important arbiters of of values and conduct, there comes to be a heightened focus on images, on buying and selling, on getting and spending, cultivating good looks and personal charm. One important development that happens in the 1920s is that we see the rise of a consumer economy, or the producer economy of the 19th century had been supplanted by the consumer orientation focused on, on buying and selling. And the first decades of the 20th century see the phenomenal growth of the sales and service industries. So in this sector, uh, work comes to depend less on physical labor than on emotional labor. Success at work requires what, uh, sociologist Irving Goffman described as impression management. Manipulating your looks and your speech and your acts to meet the emotional and psychological demands of customers, clients, and coworkers. Um, the key to success at work is described as salesmanship. The basis of effective selling is creating a positive first impression. Salespeople were told to sell customers on themselves and their personalities as much as they have the properties of their goods and services. So this idea of salesmanship, selling your personality, comes to be applied to social relations more generally uh, in the 1920s. The efforts of salespeople to sell products to skeptical customers becomes a metaphor for the social struggle waged by every person in an effort to distinguish herself in the faithless modern world, to stand out from the crowd. The body of advice literature developed to address this concern with impression management. And the basic premise was that most people do not have an appealing public persona, but could work hard to cultivate one. And uh, perhaps no one contributed more to this, cult of First Impressions and Dale Carnegie, uh, who was the author of the, the famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, and that book reinforced the idea that the key to success was to manipulate your image in order to impress and manipulate others. Carnegie held up as a model of social success, the stage performer, you know, plotted out every aspect of his routine. Everything he did, every gesture, every intonation, every lifting of an eyebrow had been carefully rehearsed in advance. Uh, And so in the social drama of one's own life, everyone was expected to perform with that kind of charm and precision. Film stars who exercised meticulous control of their images become role models and icons. And the advertising industry, in conjunction with the new field of pop psychology, promised people that they can use conspicuous consumption to achieve a stunning image and stand out from the crowd. Um, Advertisements began to preach that one of the most important things in life is to have a good image, a good public image, and to actively shape your image, even more than having an objectively favorable image What becomes important is how you feel about your image. So it's not only critical that you look good in the eyes of others, but that your public image reflects your self-image, that it externalizes the vision of yourself that you hold in your own mind. So these become the preoccupations of the modern image-conscious society, having a good image,
0: feeling good about your image, feeling in
1: control of your image, being the master of your image.
0: What do privacy rights look like by the mid 20th century? So, by
1: the 1950s, um, the tort of invasion of privacy exists in most states. Um, and the, the Restatement of Torts, which is um, a you know, very um, esteemed legal treatise, describes the invasion of privacy tort in this way. Um, it says a person who unreasonably and seriously interferes with another's interest in not having his affairs known to others or his likeness exhibited to the public is liable to the other. So by this time, most invasion of privacy suits were brought against the media, the newspapers, magazines, and most of them did not involve publications that were particularly private. So in most of these privacy cases, it's not that the media is exposing uh, what someone does in one's bedroom or one's illness. Most privacy cases involve situations where people had been presented to the public in a way they found misrepresentative or upsetting, even though the activities portrayed weren't especially personal or secret. The number of privacy suits involve photographs of a person taken in public and published without their consent. So in these cases, the law of privacy really has little to do with privacy. We're not talking about an exposure of private life. The right to privacy plaintiffs claimed was a right to not be depicted in a fashion that contradicted their desired self-image, their self-image. So people want to put their own spin on their persona. Privacy, the right to privacy, is a right to selective self-exposure. Um some examples of uh, this kind of privacy suit, uh, there was a case involving an elderly woman who was a bread vendor uh, on the street, and she sued over newsreel footage that depicted her selling her wares on the streets of New York. She complained that the portrayal of her was foolish and undignified, and therefore an invasion of her privacy. There was another case where a woman was in an exercise course for overweight women, and a newsreel cameraman captured her on film. It was shown in movie theaters, and she sued for abrasion of privacy, allegedly because the footage was embarrassing. Um, some privacy cases were brought and won over publication that were actually benign in most people's eyes although the subjects of publicity were upset by them. Um, the Warren Spahn, the famous baseball player, sued over an unauthorized biography that he claimed was actually too flattering. Uh, the biography depicted him as a war hero who had been awarded the Bronze Star, which was false. Uh, the book also inaccurately portrayed his relationship with his father, who actually looks very kind in the story, uh, and it incorporated some false dialogue. And Fong um, found this to be offensive, sued for invasion of privacy, and was successful at trial. And so I argue that it's only in a culture where people feel possessive and protective of their images that these kinds of misrepresentations, even if benign, will be experienced as serious harm. So only in a culture that uh, invest great importance in images right? the freight public image with such emotional and psychological weight that the law recognizes these kinds of harms and takes them seriously. So the law is tracking the cultural focus on images and in recognizing these kinds of privacy claims as worthy of judicial attention and monetary judgment in some cases, courts heightened Validate and heighten this image conscious sensibility and and contribute to the construction of the image focused self.
0: All right. How did libel law change over the 20th century?
1: So, one big change uh, is that there's a significant increase in the number of libel lawsuits over time. Uh, I'm not saying that people are suing all the time over libel. The number of libel suits is actually very low, uh, so it's not high in any absolute sense. Um, however, uh, the observers by the 1930s uh, remarked on a growing tendency of individuals to resort to the courts to settle disputes over reputation. Uh, celebrities increasingly bring libel suits as part of their publicity repertoire. Right. Celebrities find that libel suits are a great way of promoting their public images and promoting uh, their version of the truth. Um, One of the things I document in chapter six of the book is how defamation law changes to reflect the image conscious sensibility. Um, So by the 1950s, uh, some courts had broadened the definition of a defamatory publication to include statements that didn't necessarily lower a person's reputation, but nonetheless caused them distress and embarrassment. So a publication in this view could be defamatory if it tarnished a person's image in his own eyes, causing mental distress. Courts are expanding libel's domain from external interpersonal relations to include one's self-perception and one's feelings about one's image. Uh, There was a case from the late 1920s where a newspaper published an article on the theory of evolution. Uh, In in the article, uh, one part of the text read, uh, the gorilla is probably closer to man, both in body and in brain than any other species of ape now alive. Um, and near that text appeared a photograph of a wrestler, famous wrestler, who was in a wrestling pose. And under it, there was a caption uh, that said the wrestler was not fundamentally different from the gorilla in Z. Um He sued for quite a large sum, and a jury awarded damages. So it's unlikely that that, actually injured his reputation in the community. Nobody probably thought less of him because of this embarrassing article, but it injured his feelings. And a jury sympathized with that. And they they awarded him, I think, $25,000. So in some sense, uh, the actions for defamation and privacy were converging. Both were uh, protecting the person ability to control his public image and and his feelings about his image.
0: Could you describe the tension between the freedom to define one's own public persona and the freedom to make and distribute images of other people, even if caustic, embarrassing, or unflattering? So what
1: Uh, I'm talking about, I think you're referring to um, a section of the book where I, I talk about conflict between the right to privacy and and freedom of the press. Right. Uh, And this is a a conflict that was going to run throughout the entire story. And and indeed, it it still exists today uh, quite starkly. So, since the inception of the privacy tort, um, many believed that the right to privacy could not exist alongside freedom of speech. I mean, the privacy tort imposes liability for the publication of true facts. Uh, and Warren Brandeis and Brandeis and a number of courts in early privacy cases were very well aware that there was a potential conflict between privacy and freedom of speech. And so they crafted a privilege within the privacy tour that would exempt the media from liability for invasion of privacy when it published material that was, quote, a matter of public interest or a matter of public concern. Uh, and early courts defined that term very narrowly. So what was a matter of public interest? It wasn't what the public was interested in, because then gossip and sensationalist media would be immune. Um, rather, a matter of public interest was what courts felt the public should be interested in, in its own best interest. Um, by the 1930s and 40s, state courts began to expand the definition of matters of public interest. And this is the same time that the Supreme Court began to uh, assert a more uh, liberal, or civil libertarian interpretation of the First Amendment, granting the press uh, broader rights to publish, broader rights to speakers across the spectrum. So in this new view of matters of public interest, um, anything, that interested the public, whether it be a gossip column or a dramatic account of a crime or some other titillating material, it was considered a matter of public interest uh, that could be published uh, free of liability, even if the people depicted in those stories were unwilling to be publicized. Uh, some courts equated matters of public interest with newsworthy material, and they adopted an expansive definition of the news. If something appeared in a publication that professed to be a news outlet, it was by definition newsworthy and a matter of public interest and, and therefore protected from liability for invasion of privacy. Um, so while this is happening, though, on the other hand, you have courts who are more than happy, which are more than happy to award privacy judgments to people who have been uh, unflatteringly depicted in the press. And so there's this, this conflict going on by the you know, 1930s, 1940s. This question of how the right to privacy can be reconciled with freedom of speech and press becomes you know, one of the major legal issues of the day. Um, as, as I explained in the book, it seems that people want to control their images, yet they want to be able to write freely about other people, right? They want to be able to tear down other people's images without restriction. Uh, and so this tension between fr- privacy and freedom of the press comes to a head in this very famous case from 1940 uh, called Citus versus FR Publishing, uh, basically Citus versus The New Yorker. And, and this case involved uh, a man who had been a child prodigy in the World War One era. He had attended Harvard at 11. He spoke 11 words several languages. He had an IQ of 250. uh, He had been a celebrity as a child. Um, As an adult, however, his his life started to take a poor turn. Uh, He neglected his talents. He became an adding machine operator. Uh, He lived alone in a shabby rooming house. He became eccentric. He cultivated some really bizarre habits, like collecting streetcar transfers. He became obsessed with a particular Native American tribe. Um, the New Yorker tracked him down when he was 39 years old and living this bizarre life, and it wrote up a story that described his eccentricities in detail. He was humiliated and he sued the New Yorker for invasion of privacy, for injuring his public image and his, injuring his feelings. And the Second Circuit concluded that the magazine was not liable to citing that the tarnishing of this man's image was an inevitable sacrifice to be made for the New Yorker's right to publish and the public's right to know about the fate of a former celebrity. The court said that even though the New Yorker article was probably tacky and in poor taste, it wasn't the role of the court to enforce good taste. The court says, well, the misfortunes and frailties Public figures are subjects of interest to the public, and it would be unwise for a court to bar their expression in the newspapers, books, and magazines of the day. Um, so 50 years after the invention of, pri- the, invention of the privacy tour, Citus is the first decision from a high federal court to imply that the right to privacy could be limited in the interest of freedom of speech and press. Um, science didn't resolve the question by any means, and, and the tension between privacy and freedom of the press continues. And so the history of American image law, as I describe in the book, is the story of simultaneous expansion and limitation. We have this ongoing recognition of image rights by the courts, and at the same time the restriction of them by freedom of speech
0: doctrine. Okay, so where are we today with privacy and public image? Um, So I think that the story today
1: is kind of dominated by the internet and our new world of online communication, um, which have really revolutionized the concept of having a public image. So In the old days, publicity was really a function of the mass media. If you wanted to become famous, you needed to attract the attention of a newspaper or a filmmaker or something like that. Um, Today, mass visibility is pretty much within reach of of anyone with, you know, a computer uh, and and internet access. Um, When the internet first became popular in the 1990s, there were many who were very optimistic. uh, They thought this new medium would reinvigorate the public sphere, Uh, the web would be this free forum for ideas. It would be a true marketplace of thought. Uh, But as we know, things haven't turned out quite that way. Um, The very properties that made the internet so conducive to freedom of communication, such as its anonymity and its accessibility, have really kind of brought out the worst in human nature and created great potential for injury and abuse. we have had in recent years an outcry over online threats to reputation and privacy that probably surpasses uh, the fears uh, of the 1890s. And a lot of what's complained about, as we know, is material published by bloggers or social media users, uh, people write nasty things about other people and post them on their blogs, etc. Um, one interesting thing is uh, one interesting facet of this, I think, is that people complain about invasions of privacy when material that they put online is miscontextualized or used in some way that they don't approve of. Um, for example, there was a case a few years back where a high school student wrote a poem about her hometown that was it was very nasty, and she put it on her MySpace webpage. Uh, the school principal saw it and submitted it to the local newspaper where it was published. And this girl sued the newspaper for invasion of privacy, claiming that she intended the poem to be read only by her MySpace friends, not by a broader audience, and that she had been humiliated and her public image injured. So and this happens all the time, I think, with, with, with Facebook and various social media. People will willingly post something online and then uh, become very angry and indeed bring, even bring lawsuits when that information that they posted is then released to a different audience or, or somehow put in a context that they hadn't anticipated. Um, so how is it that people can do this, right? People can expose themselves, yet claim invasion of privacy. And this is kind of a continuation of the trend um, I describe in my book. People want to create a public image. They want to expose themselves to the public, and yet they want to manage and control those images. Uh, And that's what I think privacy is coming to mean in our online world, basically a right to control the context and circumstances of our self-publicity.
0: How did laws of image substantially shape media content? Beginning...
1: I would say around 1900 or 1910, it became a common practice for publishers to have lawyers read all of their copy prior to publication, uh, looking for potentially libelous or privacy-invading material. I could get rid of anything that could be grounds for a lawsuit, Um, and this practice of media self-censorship, as it as it was known. was a response to a rising number of privacy and libel lawsuits in this crime. And so, I try to emphasize in the book, um, these laws of image played and still do play, a significant role in determining what appears in the press.
0: How did you tackle telling this story from the perspective of the, of the elusive ordinary American?
1: So, like I said, I wanted to write about the ordinary person's relationship to public image because so much of the work in this area has focused on celebrities. Uh, It's almost as if scholars have forgotten that we all have public images. Most of us think our images and reputations are valuable, uh, and that ordinary people actually, not celebrities, bring most of the libel and privacy lawsuits in this country. Um, So how to get at what ordinary people in the past did and and what they thought uh, is a difficult question question that historians are always grappling with. Um, For legal historians, the question often is, well, how do we hear the voices of plaintiffs and defendants and other legal parties beyond what appears in official legal texts like court opinions, right? How do we really know why someone sued and what they hope to get out of a lawsuit and and what beliefs and motivations um, spurred them to press forward with a case? So, this often involves archival research. and if we're lucky, we might have access to letters or diaries or other documents that give us a human sense, human give us the human side of a case. And uh, when writing my book, I was fortunate to have access to some archival records that helped me gain insight into the meaning of the privacy lawsuit for the plaintiffs and the cases. Um, I had, Access to extensive correspondence in the Citus case that I talked about. Uh, another case for which I had archival records was cases. This is a privacy case. It reached the Florida Supreme Court in the 1940s. Um and this case involved the famous author Marjorie Kinnon Walling, who was the author of the famous uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Yearling. And in 1942, she wrote a an autobiography uh, that consisted of vignettes of her interactions with people in her local community. She wrote about a woman who was a good friend who was named Zelma and in real life, this woman, Zelma was a middle-aged social worker with a fiery test. Uh, in the book, Zelma appears in a very complimentary manner, but there were a few passages that upset her. Uh, Rawlings had written Zelma is an ageless spinster resembling an angry and a centenary. I cannot decide whether she should have been a man or a mother. She combines the most violent characteristics of both. Um, Kaysen was upset by this portrayal, which she thought depicted her as profane and masculine, and she sued for libel and invasion of privacy. Um, according to the documents and records that we have, she sued in part for vengeance, she was angry, and she wanted to make Rawlings suffer by forcing her to defend herself in court. Um, she also wanted to use a lawsuit to spin her own positive image. She believed that she was demure, attractive, and feminine, she was not the uh, masculine, uh, angry person that Walling portrayed her as, and she thought that a lawsuit would set the record straight. She thought that a trial would be widely covered by the press, which in fact it was, I and mean, she could use this trial as kind of a venue for image performance. And indeed, at trial, a case appeared wearing a blue polka dot dress with a fresh gardenia. She testified that she was just and meek, and she had never used the Lord's name in vain in her life. Um, Wallings, of course, tried to strategically manipulate her own public image. She appeared demure and feminine, defied her admiration for Kaysen, uh, admiration for the local community. Um, In this public image battle, Rawlings triumphed. Uh, The sympathies of the public and the press were on the author's side. Uh, Kaysen came off looking insincere and litigious. Uh, Kaysen lost her libel claim, but she lost her privacy claim is actually a groundbreaking case, the Florida Supreme Court noted that even for the depiction of Kasen in the book was not, was complimentary, Rawlings had injured Kasen's ability to control her public image. Even if no one thought less of Kasen for the depiction, Rawlings had nonetheless injured Kasen's ability to define who she was in the public
0: eye. Could you tell us some future directions of sociolegal historical research that you think will build off of your work?
1: Um, I think one obvious place to go would be studying the implications of my research for the present day, uh, exploring self-image and public identity in our digital age and with it. Uh, our evolving wanted image. Where where are we now with all of this? Um, I realize that this is technically historical research, but I do think it's much needed. Profound transformations we're now experiencing with the internet and social media. Um, You know, what does it mean to have a reputation in a world where who we are socially is determined by Facebook and Yelp? We claim to be obsessed with privacy. We all complain that we don't have enough privacy, but online, exhibitionism seems to be the norm. So what does privacy mean in this world of massive self-exposure and infinitely malleable images? Uh, now, we're all our own public, right? Do we need laws anymore to us from other people's nasty comments? Maybe we can just write back. Or do we need the law's protection even more, given the potential for serious harm uh, that, comes with on- that comes with online communication? Um, so these are some questions that I think about, and although as a historian I might not be the right person to answer them, I think they're certainly worthy of addressing, and indeed, a number of scholars in, in law, sociology, and other fields uh, uh, are beginning to do that.
0: To conclude, I'd love to know what you're working on now.
1: Yeah, so I had just created a manuscript that focuses, a book manuscript, uh, that focuses on a case that I described briefly in Laws of Image. And this is the case, Time Incorporated versus Hill. It's from 1967. And it was the first case in which the Supreme Court considered the First Amendment implications of tort liability for invasion of privacy. So it's the first time the Supreme Court considers as a constitutional issue, the right to privacy versus freedom of the press. Um, so the story of this case began in 1952 when a family of seven, the James Hill family, was held hostage by escaped convicts in their home in suburban Philadelphia. And this was really a strange crime. Uh, these fugitives trapped the family in their home for 19 hours treat them politely, and then left left them completely unharmed. Uh, for a few weeks, the Hills were subjects of media coverage. Public interest. eventually died out, and then the Hills went back to their ordinary lives. Uh, in 1964, an author named Joseph Hayes published a book called The Desperate Hours, a true crime thriller about a family that was held hostage in their home by three state convicts. So, this was based loosely on the story. Uh, The book became a bestseller and was made into an award winning play and then a major Hollywood film starring Humphrey Bogart. In 1955, Life magazine ran a story on the play. And this article falsely described the play as a reenactment of the experience. It implied that the family had been abused and the daughters raped as it had been suggested in the play and the film. Uh, so the family was devastated by this publicity, which thrust them into the spotlight against their will and forced them to relive this hostage crime. So the Hills sued Time, Inc., or the Publishers of Life, for invasion of privacy in the New York courts. Uh, they won a trial, and Time, Inc. appealed through the state court system and then to the U.S. Supreme Court. And TimeMake argued that the judgment for the Hills violated its free rights under the First Amendment. So this Time versus Hill case comes to the Supreme Court in nineteen sixty-five, uh, which is kind of an important moment in both the histories of privacy and the history of freedom of speech. Uh, in nineteen sixty five, the Supreme Court had just decided Griswold versus Connecticut recognizing the constitutional right to privacy. And in 1964, it decides New York Times versus Sullivan, free speech protection under libel law. Um, the attorney for the Hills was former Vice President Richard Nixon. After his failed campaign for governor of California in 1962, Nixon joined a Wall Street law firm uh, that ended up representing the Hills. So, when the court first met after the oral argument in April 1966, the vote was to affirm the judgment for the Hills. The majority of the court said that the right to privacy, as construed by the New York court, did not infringe on freedom of the press. Uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren signed the opinion to Justice Abe Fortas, who wrote a passionate defense of privacy and saving attack on the media. Fortas said that life's use of the Hill family in this story was irresponsible journalism inflicting needless injury on innocent citizens and it had no relationship to the purpose of the First Amendment. He said there was no doubt that a fundamental right to privacy exists and that it's a constitutional right, that it's the right to be left alone, live one's life as one chooses, free from intrusion or invasion. So Fortis basically says that the Hills have a constitutional right to privacy that outweighs Time Inc.'s right to publish. Justice Hugo Black ultimately changes the court's position. Black was a free speech absolutist who believed that any restraint on freedom of speech was unconstitutional. He lobbied the court which resulted in a switch in votes and then a new majority voted in favor of Time Inc. And so Justice William Brennan writes majority opinion and he says that the hills have no reasonable expectation of privacy at least when it comes to media publicity he says that by being a part of a quote civilized society we waive our right to not be publicized in the media that is to say none of us have a reasonable expectation to think that we won't be photographed or written about so long as we're involved in newsworthy matter. And the court defines news very broadly in this case. Um, Brennan rejects Fortas' idea that people have a constitutional right to privacy that can be invoked against the media. And this case, I think, is really kind of the beginning of the end of the right to privacy against the press in the United States. Um, there is kind of this interesting Side story to this case, a kind of an unexpected consequence of this case. Um, Let's we'll say that Time versus Hill was responsible for the election of Richard Nixon as president. Nixon, between 1962 and 1968, he was out of politics. He was working in the law firm, and he was desperately trying to get back in the political arena. Uh, he was constantly doubtful about the possibility of reviving his political career. He was very insecure. And his strong performance in the oral argument in Time versus Hill allegedly gave him the confidence to enter the 1968 presidential race. Uh, so Time versus Hill may be one reason why we end up with President Richard Nixon. Uh So my book is tentatively titled Time versus Hill and America's Search for Privacy, and it will be published by Stanford University Press, uh, I think,
0: next year. Fantastic. That sounds like a very interesting project. I really want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation.